when Kate Spade died by suicide, the, the articles that I saw pop up were just, I was just so disappointed in society. One of the things that we know from, from, from suicide um, research is that talking about suicide doesn't increase the risk. Um, so bringing it up and talking about it and talking about the literature and talking about ways to get help doesn't increase risk. But giving dramatic examples of individuals who have died by suicide can, right? Um, and so in a lot of these like media reports, they were so dramatic, right? Kate Spade died by suicide by using a scarf and just so dramatic. And, and that can actually increase so much risk um, for dying by suicide. We know that when, um, when Robin Williams died by suicide, there was actually a spike. I think it was like 9.8% increase. Welcome to the Phil with Forbes 30 podcast. This is Phil Michaels, Forbes 30 under 30 entrepreneur and performance coach. Every year, Forbes names the top 30 entrepreneurs, leaders, and stars in the world. And each week, I bring you one of them to help you level up in your life and business. From celebrities like LeBron James to Kylie Jenner and Cardi B, to entrepreneurs with companies like DoorDash, Instagram, and YouTube, you're sure to learn from the list. Thanks for spending time with me today. Now it's time to level up. Level up. Welcome to the Phil with Forbes 30 podcast. Today we have a very special guest. He made the Forbes USA list in 2020 this year for the science category. He's calling in from Montreal at the Douglas Research Center. He is a neuroscientist based out of McGill University. He utilizes post-mortem human brain samples coupled with psychological autopsies to understand the molecular impacts of severe childhood abuse on the brains of depressed individuals who died by suicide. Please welcome our very special guest, Daniel Almeida. Thank you so much for having me, Phil. Very excited to have you here. It's my pleasure. I'm honored and welcome to the show. And before we dive into things, where were you when you first found out you made the list? So I actually had a friend text me. Um, I was at home. It was in the morning and a friend texted me and said, congratulations. And I had asked, congratulations for what? And then he ended up sending me a screenshot. And yeah, I don't think I went to work that day. I was too excited to do any experiments. I had a similar approach. I had an old professor message me and he's like, congratulations, well-deserved. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, go look on Facebook. It was like a bunch of friends and, and whatnot posted and shared it before I had even realized what was going on. It was such a proud moment. What about you? Who did you share it with first when you first found out? I shared it mostly with my family. Um, and then afterwards, uh, people in the research center ended up uh, hearing about it. And that was interesting because the Dean of McGill University, the Dean of Research, everybody got involved. I got emails left, right, and center. I got invited to an event that uh, usually only professors are invited to. So that was kind of interesting. I was put on the McGill Research Honors List, uh, which is usually exclusively uh, for researchers at McGill. So I thought that that was just really exciting. What a rewarding moment. Yeah, I really want to dive into this because I, you know, I have had some previous experience, you know, with childhood trauma and had to go to child psychologist as a, as a young lad. And I'm really, I'm just 
so enthralled by the idea of mental health and just really helping people understand how important it is, how the brain develops at such an early age and what can happen from that, those formative brain development years of prenatal through six years of age, where a lot can happen to the brain from a, a neuroplasticity side, a, a physical aspect that I really want to dive into. So I can't wait to learn more about this. And, but before we dive into the granularity of it, take us back to the beginning. How did you become inspired by this? I mean, where you're from, where you grew up, and ultimately what led you to where you are now? Yeah. So um, I get asked this question a lot because you know, I'm in a pretty niche area of research working with postmortem human brains. Uh, when I was a kid, I originally wanted to be an ecologist. I would go to the creek, I would investigate all the animals there, and I was just so excited to be able to study that. Um, later on in uh, the final years of high school, my dad almost died of a stroke, and I was the one that was at home and found him. I was the one that took him to the hospital. And I think it was really the, the eight months of watching how his brain related to his behavior that got me so fascinated by, like you said, the idea of plasticity and the idea of our brain. Uh, I remember one day, one of his nurses handed me a book uh, by Dr. Jill Bolt Taylor. She actually has a TED talk. She's a Harvard trained neuroanatomist that used her knowledge of the brain uh, to basically heal herself from a stroke. And uh, when the nurse had handed me that book, I stayed awake like all night reading it. I was so excited to try and figure out, you know, how could I help my dad's brain get better? Um, and then from there, I really just decided I wanted to devote my life to, to studying neuroscience and to studying the brain. Wow, how long ago was that? Oh boy, so that was, uh, yeah, later years of high school, so. So, okay, got it. A while and you, ago. And this was in Montreal? So I'm originally from Toronto. Um, I moved to Montreal to actually do uh, my PhD in neuroscience. McGill has, you know, such an amazing and colorful history in neuroscience. Some of the, I mean, you probably heard the phrase, the neurons that fire together, wire together. Donald O'Hebb was from there. Um, really huge, huge neuroscientist in the field came from McGill. And the research center that I work in, the supervisor that I work with, is one of the co-directors of our brain bank. And so the way that you're able to get postmortem brain samples is through a brain bank. And so the opportunity was just way too big to miss out uh, not moving to Montreal to be able to work on these very well-characterized brain samples. And then how did you get so hyper-focused in that one particular area? So you're, it's a later stage of high school. You, you become fascinated by this idea. You want to work in neuroscience. McGill's a perfect location to do that. That explains that, why you led that, were led there. And then how did you make that shift to the granularity that you're focusing on now? Yeah, so for me, I've always been fascinated by this idea of plasticity, um, especially in the context of, you know, my dad's stroke and how his brain healed. Um, but at the same time as his brain healing, I think my brain was also impacted by the life experience. It was the case though that that life experience shaped my brain in a positive way, right? It was inspirational for me. I was so excited to get started. I remember the first day that I opened up my first neuroscience textbook and I just felt so grateful to be there. Um, and so that led me to this idea of, of how is it that uh, life experiences can shape the brain when it's so plastic and when it's developing. 
And that led me to the research of, well, what about individuals that go through a negative life experience? And that leads to worse up outcomes for them. That leads to developing a mental illness or dying by suicide. Um, and so that's sort of the, the path that got me to the, the area of research that I do today. So you saw, even though certain events could, even though they might be traumatic in the moment, they could lead to a positive outcome, whereas most of them could lead to a negative outcome, such as those committing suicide or those that are depressed. Yeah, and there's tons of research today on this idea of susceptibility versus resilience. Um, you know, what is the molecular biology? What's going on in the brains of individuals who go through negative life experiences and they're susceptible and have worse outcomes versus individuals who go through negative life experiences and are fine. Um, and a lot of research today has focused on resilience. Um, you know, we've had many years looking at susceptibility and trying to figure out, well, how do we sort of fix brains that negatively respond to life experiences? Well, maybe we can do that by leveraging what we know about resilient brains. Um, and I think that's sort of where the field is right now, which is, I think, super exciting that we're now looking at it from the more positive perspective. That is fascinating. And I'm excited to dive into what you've learned so far that might be surprising to those in the audience or even to yourself. But before we do, for those in the audience that might not know what plasticity means, can you share in layman's terms a little bit about the brain and, and how it can change over time from a physiological standpoint? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, long time ago, we thought that the brain was sort of this static organ, you know, life experiences, black box, nothing happens to it. Um, today, we know that the brain can change, right? The brain changes when we're learning, the brain changes when we have a stimulating conversation, the brain changes when we're sleeping, the brain is always changing. And sometimes the brain changes in a positive way. And sometimes the brain changes in a negative way. So for instance, um, today, when you look at the molecular models underlying addiction, that's the brain changing, right? It's just the brain changing in one direction versus another direction. Um, and so that's sort of my definition of, of what neuroplasticity is. It's, it's all the rage in neuroscience. Oh, I can imagine. I mean, because we had previously thought, oh, there's no changes happening. Once the brain is fixed, it's fixed for life. And now we find out, oh, wait a second, things are moving around in here. Things can be impacted by your environment, not just for, from genetics or your congenital conditions from your family history. So what's something that people can do right now or what's something they can do to maybe change that in a positive way? I know there's like foods that you eat can, can add value to your brain, but there's something that you could give us as a tip Okay, definitely avoid these things in your life, whether it's experiences through the five senses. I'm sure all five senses play a part in how our brain is shaped. And what has been the most impactful? Like, what's the top three things you think people should be doing to protect their brain and not just protect it, but get it to thrive? That's such a fantastic question. So um, I think the one thing that the literature has shown that's very, very convincing, the one thing that is super well linked to good mental hygiene, super well linked to healthy brains is social connection, genuine social connection. I mean, the, there was a study that was done by Harvard that longitudinally followed people up until they were like in their 90s. And what they found was that social connectivity was the thing that predicted well-being for them. 
Um, I think so social connection is really at the top of my list and I think at the top of, of the research list. Um, there's also neuroplastic changes that undergo when we exercise, um, especially if we enjoy the exercise that we're engaging in. If it's something that allows us to experience this flow state of, you know, you're in the game at that moment, you're really enjoying it. Research has shown that that can be very positive for not only our me mental health, but our physical health and all around. And then uh, I think finally, there's also research to show that, you know, psychotherapy and counseling or seeing a coach, these things can also impact our brains in positive ways. And sometimes the research has shown that they impact our brain in the same direction that, for instance, taking medication might as well. Um, and I think that the, the two together, right, using therapy, talking to somebody at the same time as doing a bunch of other things, I think holistically can um, be a way to make sure that we have healthy brains. That's great. So make sure you're sleeping properly. Uh, make sure you have strong social ties, but not just that you have them, but engaging with them in a positive way. Um, and then also making sure that we are, uh, I, I know one of the things I learned about is the gray matter of the brain can be enhanced through meditation. And I, I've been eating blueberries a lot because I've heard, I don't, I'm not sure how strong the literature is around that, but I've been eating them because I've, I heard that they're a good brain food and walnuts. So is there anything like that that you've seen? It has had a positive effect. I mean, I love that you said coaching too. So coaching and therapy could be used to enhance even more so than medication in some cases, but taking this holistic comprehensive approach is there any like go-to brain foods that you eat on a regular basis that could be of help? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. And I, I get the question, I think, uh, pretty frequently. So we have a researcher in our group that studies um, the gut-brain access. So in extension to getting post-mortem human brain samples, we also have post-mortem intestines as well. And some of the work is looking at sort of how does the gut microbiome relate to changes in the brain and predict sort of mental health outcomes. I think that the field is very, very new. Uh, a lot of the times when research is done, um, the sample sizes are small. Um, and yeah, I think it's really, it's, it's really early in the field to say that, you know, this one food is gonna be effective for every single body and every single brain and every single microbiome. Um, and I think that's the one thing that I've learned is that it, there's so much diversity when it comes to mental well-being. that what works for you might not work for me and might not work for another person. Um, so I think I kind of didn't answer your question, but that's sort of the, the best, the best answer I could come up with. So it might be different for everyone, but it, as it, as the literature comes out and it's updated, you know, try to improve your brain as much as possible. So it's kind of like a Pascal's wager where you might not have all the information at the current moment, but of the information you have, if the pros outweigh the cons, then you might as well do it, even if you don't ha know enough to, for it to be 100% true. For example, the cost of me going out and buying blueberries is very small compared to the potential benefits, for example, that blueberries might enhance my brain or enhance cognitive function or even decrease the the issues that might occur later on in, in life. Exactly. Yeah. I've been doing some brain training too uh, <laughs> with uh, 
Brain HQ is the name of the app. It's kind of like Lumosity, but apparently it's the most scientifically studied that Tom Brady uses it, the quarterback for the New England Patriots. And I learned about it out of MIT. And so I've been doing that on a fairly regular basis to just keep my brain active and thinking through things. Because I know one of the things that you could do to create new neural connections is learning something new and actively challenging your brain because it you get so ingrained to these habits and routines it doesn't really shock your brain you don't have to think much your cognitive bandwidth isn't being consumed so sometimes you get into the routine of just brushing your teeth doesn't really require much cellular energy of the brain but if we can force ourselves to learn new things or challenge our brain in different ways then we can possibly enhance the neural connections is there anything that you do like that on a regular basis outside of your your everyday work obviously is a challenge in and of itself yeah so i think um in the context of learning something new and i think that i'm always learning every single day about the brain (laughs) even though i've been in the field for i think it's gonna be 10 years now um I'm still learning about it. I feel like it's this mysterious organ that we continually to learn more and more and more about. Um, one of the things that I do when I'm sort of learning something for the first time or trying to wrap my hand around a new concept or a new theory is I approach it from multiple uh, perspectives and sort of have this spaced repetition of today I'll think about it in this particular way and tomorrow I'll think about it in this other way and then the day after that I'll think about it in a different perspective. And So that consolidation leads to stronger memory networks and leads to better reconsolidation of the memory. I give the advice to my students all the time that when you're studying for an exam, if you're just sort of there sitting down and reading the content and memorizing the content, I promise you, you're not going to end up getting a good grade. But the approach is to think about the content, apply the content in your life, apply it into new situations. How can you see this content applied to your everyday actions, uh, bring it into your life and sort of think about it in multiple ways and from multiple perspectives. And I think that's been sort of an effective studying tool for them. Yeah, I actually learned about a study slash memory technique where the more crazy or abstract the relation you kind of look at it through the the better. So like when you're trying to remember someone's name, you could picture like a spider dancing in the sky. And every time you think of their name, you think of that image and the crazier that image, the more likely you are to remember it. Yeah. That's called the Von Resteroff effect. Uh, I think it also has a crazy name in itself. So (laughs) yeah, that's the crazy. Sounds very fitting. (laughs) Yeah. Sounds very fitting. It's, I like this idea of spaced, spaced repetition. One of the things I do when I read a book is I'll read it at another time in my life. And I look at, it, look at it through a completely different lens. I've grown a lot. I have different experiences that time. And so I get a different value out of the book reading it a second or third time than, than the first time I even read it. Yeah, I also find it really interesting that we also have sort of um, context-dependent memory formation where, uh, give you an example of this, you're sort of in your bedroom and you're like, I want to go and get a glass of water from downstairs. And then you run downstairs and then you're like, whoa, what, like, what do I need? I I completely forget. And then the second you get back into your bedroom, it's like, whoa, I know that I needed a glass of water. So that's context dependent memory in that uh, when we build memories, we incorporate the context that we're in. And so another piece of advice that I always give my students is 
don't study in the same location because I promise you, you're not going to write the exam in your kitchen or in your living room or in your bedroom or at the library. And so mixing up the context makes sure that you're less context dependent for those memories. So that might be a good strategy for, let's say you're learning a new thing. Maybe you're writing like a standardized test. Maybe you're um, trying to register for the PMP. Well, a good idea would be to sort of shift up the location uh, as well as shift up the strategy that you're using as well while you're studying. That's a great tip. Great tip, ladies and gentlemen. Write that one down. I love that. Um, you know, thinking about your success and how you got to where you are today, it's incredible. And what do you think is the single most important attribute that got you to where you are today that led to your success? Uh, so I think a multitude of things. So for one is that I'm super passionate. Um, I remember one day when I was uh, in first year, I had a psychology class and the professor said, um, find, do something that you love and then find a way to get paid for it. And I think that's been sort of the, the, the thing that's driven me is that I'm, I'm just so excited about neuroscience. I, I don't think that there's anything that I would rather do when I wake up in the morning, I'm excited to do an experiment. When I'm about to give a lecture, I'm excited to give that lecture. Um, and I think it's the fact that there's always something new, right? It, it's never a dull moment. There's always something, I'm always learning. There's a lot of failures in research and it's about learning from those failures. And I find that I actually learn more from those failures than from my successes. And so that just keeps the passion alive. And I think, yeah, passion would probably be the, the one sort of trait that I think unwavering, unwavering passion and an ever changing environment. And yeah, it's funny. You said, find what you love and then find a way to get paid for it. And a lot of people I find, they find out how to get paid for something. And then along that journey, like, wait a second, I don't love this. <laughs> <laughs> so imagine, I mean, if everyone just did exactly what they love to do and then found the way to get paid for it and going through. And sometimes you need to experience different things. You need to try and experiment with different avenues and might not always be as, as maybe a fortunate as you were, Daniel, but I see a common theme with all the interviews I've been doing that sometimes our greatest pains become our greatest gifts to serve other. And you had this pain of, of having to deal with your own father's traumatic experience. And that ultimately led to where you are now and how you impact others and your purpose in life and how you're serving humanity through your work and through your interest and passion. And sometimes that passion can come from a pain that in the moment doesn't feel too good. But then you look back with hindsight and you're like, wow, okay, I get it. If that didn't happen, it might not have led me to where I am today. Exactly. No, yeah, I 100% agree. And also thinking about this journey of what, you know, led to your success. Is there any lesson that you learned along your journey that maybe you wish you had learned sooner? A few. <laughs> I think the, the one that comes to mind right off the bat is to, to not compare yourself. Um, I think there are a lot of times where, um, you know, starting out in the field. So for instance, um, both my parents are, are Portuguese immigrants. My parents weren't the most educated of people. I mean, they had enough education to get good jobs. Um, my dad owned his own business. But when I entered into academia, all of my friends, like, 
their parents were professors or doctors or surgeons or engineers. And I had come from this family where I was the first one in my extended family to get a PhD. I was the first one in my immediate family to do a bachelor's degree. And so there was a lot of times where I sort of compared myself and would say like, you know, they have all of this support. They're going to get there much faster and maybe I don't deserve to be here. But where my family lacked in sort of academic training, uh, they made up with social support. Um, and there have been so many times where, you know, I've been in a rut, I've had a bad experiment and they're there like seconds later to help me deal with it. And I think that, yeah, like I said, while I didn't have the academic support and I had to figure all that out on my own, I had their support system that was extremely strong. Well, what advice would you give someone that is maybe in this field of where they're at an Ivy League or a prestigious university such as McGill and you have all these high achievers or you're on the Forbes list and you continue to compare yourself to others because you always feel like everyone's leveling up and, and sharing their accomplishments and they keep achieving, achieving, achieving. What recommendation do you give them? What advice would you give someone that's dealing with something like that now? Yeah, I would definitely say uh, to come at it from the perspective of, you know, everybody is different and the path that you're walking is extremely different from everyone else's path. And that the only person that you should be comparing yourself to is your past self. And I think once I got into that mindset of, you know, I don't need to be better than that scientist over there or that other scientist over there. I need to be better than Daniel a year ago. And I think th that advice um, has made it a little bit easier to, to manage the failures that you see in research, to, to manage the stumble blocks, because at the same time that you're experiencing those failures, other scientists next to you are doing so well and their research projects are, projects are flourishing. But if you always compare it to yourself, well, hey, I learned something new, right? Sure, I failed, but I learned something new. So I think that sort of that perspective of, comparing to your past self as opposed to other people. That's a great, great lesson, very valuable. One of the things I always share with my clients is, because they deal with this as well, they're all high achievers, and I always tell them, no one will be the next best version of you. You're the only one that could be the best version of you. You've, you're the only one that have read the books that you've read, have gone on the experiences you've gone on, traveled to the places you've traveled to, met the people you've met, done the things that you've done and you've created this compilation of just uniqueness that only you can be the best at. So if you just remember that you have to be the best, most authentic version of you and through that is where your value derives and, and where you can impact others the most is through that uniqueness and that everybody's different, like you said, and just remembering that you're on this journey of life that's different than everybody else's journey. You're not trying to be the next best version of somebody else. You're just trying to be the best version of you. And through that, you'll see your innate, innate value that you offer others. And sometimes you just need to, what I do to, because it's one thing to say that, it's another thing to actually practice that in real life. So I encant it every day as part of my incantation, uh, reminding myself, that I have a unique gift and purpose to impact others in a positive way with, to make sure it's always fresh in my mind. <laughs> That's actually interesting. There's some uh, 
psychological research that shows that when we make these statements of affirmation, our attitudes and behaviors are very well connected to one another. And when they're not connected, we experience something called cognitive dissonance, where your brain is like, whoa, I think this thing, but then I'm saying this other thing that doesn't make sense. And so those positive affirmations and statements, especially if you make them to other people, uh, will change our attitudes and make us believe the thing that we're saying. Otherwise, we're being a hypocrite to ourselves. And that's a really uncomfortable tension for our mind. Um, so yeah, I agree with that, that approach to saying it to yourself multiple times, but then also telling other people as well. That's great. So I'll start sharing this more often <laughs> with other people. It, it reminds me of the Pygmalion effect where you set these expectations for yourself and others and they will live up to those expectations. So sometimes you put your benchmark here and you will rise up to the occasion if you keep telling yourself. I'm yeah. curious to know, you know, you're giving amazing tips for what we could do to enhance our brains and get the most out of ourselves. What's something that through your research, you've been most surprised by like, wow, I had no idea. I mean, the brain changes, that was mind blowing. But you're with your specific research. I mean, you must have analyzed a lot of samples of brain tissue and thought, wow, wait till this news comes out to the mainstream. This is <laughs> yeah, that's it's definitely interesting. So um, I remember telling my research to a cousin of mine the other day and sort of talking about some of my findings. And she looked at me and she said, well, we kind of already knew that, you know, childhood abuse impacts brain development. We already knew that. Right. But what we didn't know was the molecular mechanisms, the molecular changes through which childhood abuse can actually change our brain. Um, and that's a lot of what my research has shown is looking at sort of the molecular pathways that lead to altered brain development and lead to changes in our brain's ability to be neuroplastic and our brain's ability to learn new things and our brain's ability to acquire new information. Um, now we know, hopefully with my research and other research, what are the, the reasons why that's the case? Why is it that childhood abuse is so linked to mental illness? What is the molecular mechanisms through which that link occurs? Um, and so I think that's, that's really some of the interesting. There have been other interesting things we found in our group that uh, childhood abuse is associated with uh, reduced um, myelin of, of, of brain cells. So myelin is important for sort of um, providing um, a sheath around axons or the thing that neurons communicate through. Um, and so what you could say then is that childhood abuse sort of changes the wiring of our brain. Um, we found sort of interesting work on inflammation and how um, mental illness might be related to neuroinflammation, sort of a, a low grade state of, of neuroinflammation which I think was also uh, very interesting. I think one thing that's really interesting in the field is the fact that we're now starting to leverage new approaches to treat mental illness. So for instance, there's new work on using ketamine, for instance, uh, low doses of ketamine for the treatment of depression. Um, we know that small doses of ketamine can actually be extremely effective um, as long as it's under the supervision of a physician and um, well titrated for the individual. So I think there's been a lot of like surprising aha moments in the field, not just from my own research, but just being in the field itself and speaking to other scientists in the field. So what actually happened? So it sounds like what you're saying is we know that 
childhood trauma affects the brain. And now you're starting to understand, yeah, we knew that, but now we're learning why it happens and how it happens and the meta, uh, the molecular mechanisms through which that happens. And so could you walk us through like what area of the brain is actually affected? And then, you know, what could we do about this? What, what should parents even know about this? So they're making sure that they're not inducing the child to this traumatic stress. Cause I know, you know, I studied some early childhood development and one of the things that the center for the developing child at Harvard and Dr. Jack Shonkoff are working on is this idea of toxic stress and how this toxic stress that can occur at an early age can impact the brain till 40 years of life and later into adulthood. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, uh, with respect to the first part of the question, the, the brain areas that, that, that are involved to the brain area that I work on is Bronman area 10. So the prefrontal cortex, it's the most frontal part of our brain, Broadman area 10. And this brain area is really important for decision making. And it's sort of the part of our brain that regulates some of those more animalistic parts of our brain, like the amygdala and uh, the hypothalamus, the parts of the brain that say, you know, I want to do this right now and there's nothing stopping me. Well, the prefrontal cortex comes in and says, chill out, you, you, need, you need to relax. And one of the reasons why um, teenagers are really sort of not that amazing at decision making is because their prefrontal cortex is, is still not fully matured. It's still not fully refined. And so they don't have as much of that inhibitory control to say, chill out, let's you know, regulate those brain structures that are telling you to do whatever the hell you feel like doing at that moment. Um, so that's the brain area that, that I'm interested in and the brain area that, that I'm working on. And I think a lot of the research has shown that um, childhood abuse impacts the ability of this brain area to regulate emotion centers, the centers that say, you know, you're experiencing fear, um, centers of the brain that lead to aggression, centers of the brain that are related to mood disorders. So I think that sort of the, the circuitry, the connection between Let's look at this brain area that's important for advanced human function and then understand that when this brain area is impaired in a way, um, it leads to all of the symptoms that come uh, for individuals who have a history of severe childhood abuse. Now, with respect to um, some of the things that parents can do, uh, a lot of the research has shown that things that we might not think are impactful on our child's brain are extremely impactful on our child's brain. So for instance, just um, interfamilial conflict, right? Just fighting between parents. Today, we can classify that as a form of, of childhood abuse. And, you know, so taking those arguments away from the child and, and into a different room or having them uh, in a different way where the child's not there, I think is, is, is one sort of strategy. Uh, another thing is that sort of having open and honest uh, lanes of communication between a child. So if we think about like bullying, bullying has a huge impact on child's brains. And today with technology, bullying doesn't stop, right? Um, when you and I were kids, it was, you know, bullying happens when you're at school, but now bullying happens on social media and on Facebook and all of these different formats. Um, so having those open lines of communication and saying, we understand that this might happen and we're here to support you and talk you through it. And sort of having that support system, having that very strong social support system, I think can be also very protective um, for children as well. It might not necessarily stop the bullying from their peers, but 
now they have a way to communicate that in a healthy manner, which will mitigate some of the stress that they might be experiencing. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. So that's important. Parents, make sure you're listening to that. And I love the idea of arguments. I, I've witnessed a lot of arguments when I was a kid and I noticed that yelling does not do, do very well for my brain. And it seems like there's so much, I mean, you and I are biased because we probably understand the brain on a, on a deeper level than the average Joe or the, the layman, just because of your work in neuroscience and, and my work in anatomy and physiology, but also with early childhood development. And one of the things I learned was simple tricks that we teach parents. So for example, children that watch TV with subtitles on learn to read two years earlier than children that watch TV without subtitles. And it's fascinating because to most people, two years doesn't sound like a lot, but to you and I that know how fast the brain developments develops from zero to six years old, two years is a lifetime of brain development, especially during those, those ages. So if you can accelerate and that's just a click of a button on your TV remote or your iPad, but also the American Academy of Pediatrics, recommends that no child children should not be exposed to screen time before the age of two and what they're seeing and this will probably be of interest to you is typically for gross and fine motor skills the way that you're testing it with that age child is you roll a ball to the child and the child should grasp it with all fingers all five fingers but what's happening is the child is only trying to grasp the ball with one or two fingers because to them, it looks like a 2D object rather than a 3D object because they've been exposed to too much screen time. So it, it's amazing how these simple, simple shifts that I find my parents' generation, our parents' generation, didn't really think were that impactful, not because they weren't impactful, but because we simply didn't know enough about the brain at that point. So I hear a lot of the common saying from my parents' generation is, Oh, you know, I was eating mud in the backyard and I was raised fine and I I turned out great. It's like, yeah, just because you survived doesn't mean you were thriving and we shouldn't do more to enhance our child's life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think another interesting thing is being able to understand your child's curiosity and then helping them explore that. So for instance, one of my nieces, Brianna, she's super, super fascinated with marine biology. And I think she's like 15 years old right now. I always, I have like seven nieces and nephews, so it's hard to keep track. But um, for her, for Christmas one year, I bought her a marine biology textbook. And it was a first year marine biology textbook. And I was like, you're probably too young to read this, but I, I see that you're interested in this field and I'm here to support you. And so just recently, we found a couple of sort of uh, teen science programs that she can apply to that we're applying to together. There was a humpback whale that was in the St. Lawrence River just a a few days ago in Montreal. And I remember calling her and asked her if she wanted to FaceTime so that I could show her the humpback whale if I saw it there. So just sort of indulging them in that curiosity and, and, and allowing them to experience that I think is so important. Um, I think my parents were really, really open about my curiosity with biology. Um, They'd always take me to creeks and they would take me outdoors and they knew that that was the place that I had to be all the time. And that was the place that I was learning the best. 
So I think understanding that curiosity and giving them that sort of scaffolding environment to allow them to explore it, I think is, is another good piece of advice. Daniel, that's spot on echoing that point. Uh, one of our early advisors with the ed tech company that I, I ran is, um, it was from Lego and it's all play-based education. And one of the things he said is when a child asks you why it's because they're trying to explore, they're not, they don't just want a one word answer. They want you to help them in their imagination. So if they give the example, if you're looking at an aquarium and the child is looking at the aquarium or you see that they're fascinated with it, go and dive into their creative imagination and say, okay, let's pretend that we're scuba divers and we're in the fish tank. Oh, wow. And, and you walk them through this imagination and let them walk you through it and let them use their creativity. But most parents are like, oh yeah, it's a fish tank. It's a, there's a fish inside a glass wall. But <laughs> no, that child has a whole different imagination and picture of what's going on. And if you can help propel that imagination forward and really dive into the the visuals and the experience, like you said, is setting up this framework, but actually diving in and engaging. And even with books, uh, we teach in our ed tech company to make sure you're using dialogic reading where you're not just reading the book, but you're engaging. Like you read the sentence and you say, Oh, why do you think the dog did that with the ball? And you ask them like intuitive questions that they have to come up with the answer. And the child might not come up with the right answer, but that's not the point. It's they're creating new neural connections by even having to fire those synapses and come up with the information that you're asking for. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's, that's really, environment, uh, really interesting. And it's leveraging our knowledge that the brain changes so much during this time. And like you said, helping build connections, helping to wire neurons together. Um, using positive life experiences. So I absolutely agree. So where do you think we're going next with brain development? I mean, there's so much we've learned in the past several years, but where do we go next? What, what are you most excited about for the future of brain development? A lot of things. <laughs> uh, I'm really interested in the idea of resilience. Um, I think in the past, we used to think that molecularly resilience was sort of a shield, right? Like you had the shield that, you know, you, you just didn't respond negatively to a stimulus. And, and that was sort of resilience is that you just didn't respond negatively. Um, what research is showing today is that resilience is an adaptive process. And there are actually probably more changes that occur in the brain as a result of resilience than susceptibility. And so now resilience can sort of be thought of as more of a sword instead of just a shield, right? We have these massive changes in our brain that, that make us resilient. And I really do think that leveraging those changes to help understand susceptibility, I think that's one of the direct directions that research is going to move in. And I think that's sort of one of the directions that I'm very interested in. So not just survive again, but this theme of thriving and making the most of our brains. And it sure reminds me of Dr. Gundry. He's a cardiologist out of, I think, some somewhere in California. And he was saying that we're starting to find in the medical field that family history isn't as a result of genetics. And actually they're finding that it's more as a result of your family just happened to do the same things that they, they're teaching you to do. So they, 
they ate cheeseburgers, so you like to eat cheeseburgers. And that can affect your, your heart. And so it's interesting to see how much environment is really playing a role on the brain and the body. And maybe things are a lot more malleable than we originally thought. Are you yeah. seeing, how do you argue that? Cause that's, that's a common debate is like nature versus nurture. Yeah. That's a really fascinating area. So, um, the molecular mark that I'm interested in is epigenetics. So epigenetics is this idea that, you know, it's not just nature or nurture, it's both. And not only is it both, but now we have a tool to understand how is it that our environment can actually shape our biology. So just like we once thought that the brain was state was sort of static, we also thought that about our genetics and our genome. Um, today that we know, we know that it is plastic and there's this sort of epigenomic plasticity, just like there is this neuroplasticity that we can talk about. Um, so there's been lots and lots and lots of work in neuroepigenomics that has looked at this. Uh, just looking at animal models, for instance, there's an interesting animal model that looks at this natural distribution in rat maternal care. So you have some rats that are really amazing moms and they lick and groom their pups very frequently. And then there are some rats that are not necessarily the best of moms and don't lick and groom their pups as much. And what research is showing that is that those pups that were raised by moms with high maternal care have a different looking epigenome than those pups that were raised by moms with low maternal care. And that the maternal care actually translates to changes in the epigenome of uh, these pups. We've shown it in our lab as well, looking at a history of childhood abuse where uh, individuals with a history of childhood abuse have epigenetic modifications of the glucocorticoid receptor. So this is a receptor that responds to cortisol and it's a receptor in our brain that says, okay, too much cortisol, calm down. Like there's way too much going around in the body, way too much circulating. Which is the and stress so, hormone for those listening. Exactly. Sorry. Yeah. The stress hormone. Um, and so what this study found was that, uh, the glucocorticoid receptor, um, it's epigenetically altered so that there's less of it in the brain, uh, in this particular brain region that they studied. And that might explain hypercortisol. So high levels of cortisol because they're less able to shut down that stress system off. And I think this has been like the stress system has been a, an area of interest for early life adversity and childhood abuse in a lot of the field. Um, so I think those are both sort of interesting uh, interesting research studies that have been done to show that our environment does impact our biology mm. and that it's both of them. And now we can understand how is that the actual case? It's beautiful. I love it. And it's amazing because it's kind of like diabetics have an issue with regulating their insulin maybe, uh, or their blood glucose, their, their sugar. But uh, for this, it's more of like, how well do you regulate your emotions and your stress? And that could be impacted just by how your parents treated you when you were a child and what kind of stressful environment you went through as a child. But what if you went through that, Daniel? Let's say you did have childhood abuse and you're an adult now and you want to maybe help your regulatory system when it comes to stress levels, cortisol levels, or emotional regulations, how would you recommend, what advice would you give someone that's an adult now so they can't really impact themselves when they were a, a child, but maybe want to now? I think that's, yeah, a brilliant question. So some of the really interesting animal research that I've seen is 
put animals in early life through a similar experience, right? A traumatic experience, early life adversity, but then put them in an enriched experience and see whether or not that enriched experience rescues some of the changes that occur as a result of early life stress. And I think those types of animal models can help us at least understand, you know, what is the developmental window for responding to negative life experiences and sort of reversing them in a way. Um, so I think, yeah, that research will sort of point and tell us more, more precisely what that developmental window is and some things that we can do on a molecular level. I think um, for adults who have had a history of childhood maltreatment, there's tons and tons of stigma around um, living with a history of childhood maltreatment. So I think the first thing is um, sort of seeking out uh, strong, supportive social connection that you can talk about these ideas, maybe seeing a therapist understand, oh, okay, that's why I feel this way about a relationship today, or that's why I react to this stimulus uh, today. Well, it's because I had this sort of unresolved issue from childhood. Um, so I think the first, the first step is to really, to, to, to understand those connections and understand those links. Um, and that could be through you know, like I said, a strong supportive network where you explore those ideas or through therapy. I mean, I'm an advocate that I think everybody could benefit from therapy or counseling or coaching or something along those lines. Um, so I think that's really uh, an important step to, to actually take. I echo that as well. I 100% agree that we should all be diving into mental health. And it doesn't mean you're broken. doesn't mean you need to be fixed. doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. It just means you're already performing at a great level. Now let's just take it to the next level and, and help you improve in other areas or, of your life because it, it can affect you in all areas of your life, your finances, your relationships with intimate you know, lovers or with your family, it can, it can affect your physical health. It impacts so much of our daily lives and to just discard it as something that, oh, I don't need to take care of that. Or that's for, for people that are broken is, uh, it, it seems like that was the stigma for a long time and it's finally shifting and more people are starting to open up, in, at least in the mainstream, to this idea of I can be coached or I can have a therapist and it doesn't mean that I need to be fixed. Yeah, and so I totally agree. And I think stigma is a really important thing that we need to address before people feel comfortable talking about their mental hygiene. Um, even if you think about the language that we use around uh, mental illness, a lot of it comes with a sense of shame and stigma. So for instance, when somebody's referred to as a drug addict or an alcoholic, what we're doing is defining them by their mental illness as opposed to this is an individual who suffers with substance use or, you know, instead of saying that person's a schizophrenic, well, when that person is well controlled through medication and through therapy, that person is an individual who lives with schizophrenia, right? So even just the, the language that we use around mental illness just creates this so un, unsafe space. Um, also, I think a lot of the times when there are campaigns around mental health, there are certain bodies that are more often represented. Um, a lot of the times we exclude minority groups and we don't think about that intersectional perspective of, you know, what does it mean to be a person from a minority group and to have this sort of intersection of all of our identities together. How does that, you know, create barriers for us accessing mental health services versus somebody who maybe has a different combination of those identities. 
labels could be so dangerous. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell talks about this in Outliers or Tipping Point, where he talks about labels. You end up boxing yourself in and saying, even saying like, I'm introverted or I'm extroverted. It's like, well, hold on. In some cases, you might be more introverted. In other situations, you might be more extroverted. Or I might be more democratic in certain situations or more Republican in, or conservative in other situations. Like, remove the label. And I love that you talked about person first terminology. So I learned this in pre-med when we were working with, uh, you know, populations that are of the minority. And instead of saying, for example, a disabled skier, you should say a skier that's disabled. For example, just like making sure the person first terminology is being used because they are an individual first that might be suffering from schizophrenia, for example, like you eloquently put it. Yeah. And I think um, even the way that like mental health is talked about in the media as well is a lot of the times extremely irresponsible. Uh, give you an example of this. So um, when Kate Spade died by suicide, the the articles that I saw pop up were just, I was just so disappointed in society. One of the things that we know from, from, from suicide um, research is that talking about suicide doesn't increase the risk. Um, so bringing it up and talking about it and talking about the literature and talking about ways to get help doesn't increase risk. But giving dramatic examples of individuals who have died by suicide can, right? Um, and so in a lot of these like media reports, they were so dramatic, right? Kate Spade died by suicide by using a scarf and just so dramatic. And, and that can actually increase so much risk um, for dying by suicide. We know that when, um, when Robin Williams died by suicide, there was actually a spike. I think it was like 9.8% increase in men who were a little bit younger than he was um, dying by suicide after that. And that's because the media wasn't responsible. Is it because they over-sensationalize it? Yeah, exactly. And it sort of increases our accessibility, sort of the way that we think about suicide. And we know somebody that has done it before, right? And that might increase um, our psychological accessibility to, to dying by suicide. So but they yeah, might be irresponsible, but let's, let's give them a benefit of the doubt. And let's say they want it to be responsible. And maybe even someone's listening right now, it's in the media and wants to do a better job. They didn't know about person first terminology, for example, I wouldn't have known it if I didn't study it, but what could we do, be doing? What should we be doing? Or what should someone be doing if they are in the media and they want to learn the proper way to talk about suicide or talk about depression or mental health? Yeah, so I think for one, um, at least in the context of suicide, removing overdramatic details, um, not sort of simplifying things to one thing, right? Oh, they're depressed because they just went through a breakup. Or, oh, they're depressed because they went through a financial crisis. They're depressed because of a multitude of factors and because there are so many things that make us human and make us who we are and describe our mental health. So I think that's a, an important piece is sort of not simplifying the puzzle to this one sort of precipitating factor that we try to link um, to that person's mental illness or to that person's uh, death by suicide. I think also, yeah, using person-first terminology um, as well. So for instance, commit uh, in the context of commit suicide, um, suicide was once a crime. And so that's where that language comes from, right? People commit crimes, they don't commit death. And so one of the, the ways that we've rephrased that in the field is, is to die by suicide. That's sort of, a, it's a method of dying. 
Um, so using terminology like that as well can also be very, very impactful. And then also providing resources and links to resources at the end um, of the article, especially talking about suicide or mental illness. That's a great idea. Brilliant. Brilliant. And one of the things I wanted to touch on about you, you said if you are an adult and you may have experienced childhood trauma and you found that from your research that turning this environment into a safer environment, because some people might have, they might still exist in that negative toxic environment where they were having the stress induced from childhood and they're an adult and they're still in the same environment. Sometimes you just need to remove yourself from the environment, find a healthier, safer, happier, uh, more supportive environment. And that might even mean cutting off some social ties that you had. And I'm not recommending you cut off social ties with your family members, but I know even in my personal experience, I've had to do that or at least set boundaries because if you don't, you'll continue to exist in that negative, toxic environment possibly. And so sometimes it might even mean you not change your physical environment, but that too, but also changing the social environment that you're in. Who are the people you're connecting with regularly, creating a healthy support network? Yeah, there's some really interesting work um, about this, actually, uh, in the context of, of mood disorders. So a lot of the times with, with uh, individuals who uh, suffer from a mood disorder, like depression or bipolar disorder, um, they'll have these negative self schemas, right? So schemas, self schemas are like heuristics and thoughts about ourselves that guide our behavior. So, you know, um, Daniel is intelligent. That's a positive self schema or Daniel is not useful. That's a, that's a negative self schema. So a lot of the times um, patients with depression will have these negative self schemas and they'll look for evidence that supports their biases that they're hopeless and helpless. And so uh, what often happens is that they'll seek partners that sort of confirm those biases, right? And so you're thinking like, why do you have such a shitty partner? Like this person is clearly terrible. Wow. Um, exactly. That makes so much sense. The schemas, yeah. Because then those people are propagating that schema even further and deeply ingraining it every time that you hear it you now believe that bias even more. It's validating, it's confirming your bias. Yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the, the interesting things is that um, healthy individuals have something called an optimism bias. So if, for instance, I were to ask you, okay, Phil, what's the probability of somebody dying of cancer? You might say a number that's more realistic, right? And then I ask you, what's your probability of dying of cancer or heart disease? And the probability you're going to give me is going to be much smaller. And that's because you have this optimism bias. That won't happen to me. Uh, or also this just world phenomenon or bias, right? Bad things happen to other people, not to me. What's interesting is that um, patients with mood disorders will often not have that optimism bias. So they actually tend to be a little bit more realistic about bad things happening. Um, so optimism is, a, in fact, a good thing and, and might actually be kind of protective for us. That's healthy. You know, it's funny. I'm going to pat myself on the back for this because I always tell my, my coaching clients, end the sentence with something positive to move forward. So when you're sharing something negative, like oh, I didn't do well on that exam today, don't end there. End it with a positive action forward. So even though I didn't do well on my exam today, I'm going to study harder for the next one. So it gives them a path out because if you just end on that negative, it, it almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that you're oh, projecting for the future. I agree. Yeah. So I've been doing good. All right. 
I got Daniel's stamp of approval. Neuroscience um, stamp. <laughs> last thing about this is psychedelics. I wanted to ask you about this because I see Johns Hopkins research on on uh, you know mental health, especially with PTSD with our veterans. There's a there's actually a retreat center for ayahuasca here in Orlando, about an hour and a half from Tampa, and it's no it's on Netflix. And there's actually an amazing documentary, Shock and All, it's called. And they bring in these veterans and bring them to this retreat center. And they're using psychedelics and LSD now to see how this can help brain, especially with trauma. And so I wanted to, to ask you about that. And, and one of the things I want to put in the show notes too, is there's this documentary about brain development now for parents specifically called babies. And it shows you how babies are developing from a, granularity aspect of the brain and, and it's so fascinating it's called babies on netflix but i'm gonna put that in the show notes that was just a little side side of a tangent but any thoughts on the psychedelics any research you've seen that looks promising yeah so i'm super excited about the entire this whole field and idea i'm excited about most things in neuroscience <laughs> but so one thing that we know about uh, traditional therapy, traditional medications, antidepressants, is that some people don't respond and won't respond to antidepressants. And the, the way that we get to knowing, you know, you're going to respond to this and is by titrating, right? Using an antidepressant, that one doesn't work, or maybe they're a bad symptom, so let's try another one. Okay, that one doesn't work, so let's try another one. And there's this huge amount of time in between that it's like, okay, well, this person has been suffering this entire time for individuals who need medication um, to feel better. So I think there are two things to consider here. Um, one is that we need to explore other options like psychedelics or ketamine or whatever have you for individuals who are, are not responding to traditional antidepressants. And for two, we need to leverage things like machine learning um, and artificial intelligence to predict, maybe based off of a person's biology, maybe molecular signatures, who will and who won't respond to which antidepressants, who will and who will not have adverse drug reactions. So I think combating that problem of, you know, a lot of people don't respond to traditional antidepressant therapy, usually 30%, uh, from the perspective of, let's uh, look at other options, see if you know, those people who are treatment resistant might respond, for instance, to ketamine. Um, and then second, let's, uh, for instance, leverage uh, machine learning to be able to predict who will um, and who won't respond to certain antidepressants. The, the one caution that I have, though, is that anytime there's a new sort of drug uh, for the treatment of mental illness, there's like this huge hooray and hurrah and, you know, we found the drug that's going to work for every single person. It's probably the case that just like some people don't respond to traditional antidepressants, it's probably the case that some people won't respond to these new forms of treatment as well. So I think just having them as now a new tool in our toolbox, I think is going to be uh, very exciting. It at least opens up the door for new exploration. And it kind of makes me think, I'm assuming the research is diving into this, but if two soldiers come back, for example, from the same war, the same trauma or a similar trauma, and one does really well and is extremely resilient, backs, uh, you know, jumps back into civilian life and he's completely fine versus someone that doesn't do so well and maybe starts to develop a, a deeper mental illness 
and start suffering, I'm sure we're maybe studying the parts of the brain in this individual versus this individual. And I'm hoping that we could do that before we have to lead to post-mortem samples so we could find out in real time, how are they doing? And, in, and outside of just, you know, the war, but, or, or soldiers, but also those that are just dealing with childhood trauma and ones that like a brother and sister or twins that went through a childhood trauma. And now we look at them at, at adult in their adulthood and we see that one's doing really well, was very resilient, has a lot of grit and the other one, maybe not so much and is suffering a bit more. Yeah. There was a study that actually looked at um, the brains of uh, war veterans were, they were siblings. I think they may have been twins. Uh, where one was in the war and then the other one wasn't. They were sort of matched. Um, and what they found was uh, reduced hippocampal volume. So the hippocampus is a part of the brain that is important for memory consolidation, memory formation, but then it's also important in regulating stress as well. That's sort of a function that's not as often talked about for the hippocampus. And they found that the hippocampus was sort of smaller in these uh, individuals who had gone to war, whereas their sibling hadn't gone to war. Um, but yeah, I think one way that we can maybe approach this is using animal models. Um, animal models are, are, you know, they, they have their own limitations. Of course, we can't model things like, you know, uh, you know, insecurities about social isolation or social rejection. Like that's really difficult to model in animals. Um, but we can use animals to, to understand some of the basic things that we can model. Like, anhedonia, which is the lack of pleasure in things we once found pleasure, pleasurable, or abolition, which is a lack there of motivation. These are things that are like so fundamental to being, um, to suffering with a mental illness and is so common across many mental illnesses that we can model um, in animal models. So there's this new approach uh, in research called the RDoc framework, where instead of just saying, you know, I'm gonna study depression, uh, the approach would be, I'm gonna study the neural circuits that underlie a symptom which is very common in depression, like anhedonia, but it's also common in eating disorders or also common in schizophrenia or also, so breaking it down to the smaller parts than just these huge you know, terms of this is schizophrenia, this is depression, instead breaking it down into more granular, like you said before, um, sort of perspective. It's awesome. Daniel, you and I could talk about this for hours. I love the brain. I love the human body and how it's just so incredible. And I, we're going to have to do another episode so we can touch back in and see how things are going and check back in with you to see what updates have come from the brain. And so much is changing so quickly. But uh, to conclude, why don't we transition into the final round, uh, which I like to call the under 30 seconds round. I'm going to fire off some quick questions and answer with the first thing that comes to mind. Ready? Okay. What is the book you've gifted more often than any other book and why? Uh, My Stroke of Insight by Dr. Jill Bolt-Tiller. And it was the book that I think really inspired me uh, after my dad's stroke. Perfect. What's one of the best investments and one of the worst investments you've ever made and why? Uh, that's an interesting question as well. Um, I think I'll talk about it more from a time perspective. There are definitely research projects that I've gone down and, you know, didn't really, wasn't really fruitful, but I think I learned a lot from them. So I don't regret them and I don't regret the time investment. What's the most impactful thing you do in your morning routine 
and the most impactful thing you do in your evening routine? I try to practice mindfulness as much as possible. So uh, for instance, while I'm showering, I'll sort of be mindful. I'll take that as an opportunity, ask myself, you know, how does the water feel in my body? What are the things that I'm feeling right now in my body? You know, am I hot right now? Um, et cetera. And having that space to just shut everything else out and just feel what it feels like to have a shower. Um, I think that's, that's been sort of a fun routine. Um, that be is extremely helpful. present in the moment. Exactly. And what about in your evening routine? Uh, evening routine, I think also being really, I really love cooking. Um, so being mindful during that and, you know, being mindful of like, why am I adding this thing? What could it do to my food? And yeah, so I think mindful, there's a lot of research on mindfulness. And so I try my best to bring mindfulness into uh, my everyday uh, routine. Perfect. Pretend you won the Peter Thiel Fellowship and you were going to get money to start a business instead of go to college. What's the very first thing you do to start a new business? Uh, I think that's a hard question, but it would probably be something to do with like mental health advocacy. Um, I think, yeah, creating some type of organization that reduces stigma through uh, freely accessible workshops, something similar to like, um, the mental first aid or something along those lines. Very cool. I know there's a few apps out there now that are starting to pick up with the, the mainstream audience on, on mental health. Uh, my girlfriend and I use an app called relish, which is like mental health for relationships and just little activities you can do and practice. So it, it takes the theoretical approach, but turns it into something applicable you can use on a regular basis and it makes it fun and enjoyable. Right. Uh, Last question. What's something you never knew you needed? Oh, that's, that's also a really hard one. Something I never knew I needed. Um, I think growing up being a part of a family that was so socially connected, mm. I sometimes um, didn't, didn't value it as much as, as I should. And today as an adult, I realized that that's something I need from relationships. It's something that I need from new friendships. I'm the type of friend that, you know, when I need support, I expect my friends to be there. So I think social connection, I'd never realized this, but I think because of my upbringing is really, really important to me. Great. That's, that's a lot of value right there. Thank you so much for being here today, Daniel. Before you go, what's next for you? The next big goal, milestone, or bucket list item you want to achieve? Uh, so my dream, I would really, really love to give a TED talk one day. Um, we'll see if that's possible. Um, but I think continuing on with, with research that looks at the other side of the coin, looking at resilience. We'll get you that TED talk one day and I can't wait to watch it. Where do <laughs> listeners go to connect with you directly? Uh, they can add me on LinkedIn, Instagram. Uh, so at postmortem PhD. Uh, my Instagram account is a science-based account, so I post a lot of stuff about mental health. Um, I just posted something recently on eco-psychology because I'm a huge fan of the outdoors. Um, so yeah, at Postmortem PhD. Amazing. Thank you. Please go connect with Daniel. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for being here today. This is Daniel Almeida with McGill University, who is a neuroscientist helping you improve your brain and mental health. We learned so much today. We learned how to reorganize your workspace in case you want to remember, remember things 
faster, more effectively. We learned if you're in the media, how to word things properly using first or person first terminology. Ooh, we could talk for hours. I, I just really love this episode. And uh, Daniel, thank you so much for being here today. It was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I hope this episode helped you as much as it helped me. Have an amazing day. Thanks for joining us today. I hope this episode helped you as much as it helped me. Who do you think would benefit from hearing it? You can make an impact on their life by sharing it now. Before you go, I encourage you to tell us your favorite part of the episode in the review section. Now it's time to level up. Level up. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.